Hello, my name is Ben Oden. I'm an author, capacity building and leadership development trainer. Each week, Mimi, pamoja na viongozi mbalimbali who will be featured on this podcast, will bring you leadership principles, stories and philosophies that if applied will elevate you into a position of more influence among those you lead and those who lead you. Greetings to you. I hope you are doing well and are having a productive day. Welcome to another episode of the Why Lead Others podcast. I am your host, Ben Odin. In today's episode, we'll be diving into the individual mind, the collective mind of an organization, and how meaning drives our behavior and determines outcomes in all aspects of life. And to have this conversation, I am joined by an in-demand keynote speaker worldwide, a syndicated columnist, and a sought-after business advisor. He brings his lifetime of expertise to help organizations and leaders change the way they see themselves and in turn the way they think about markets, products, and services. His efforts culminated in a best-selling book and a PBS special. Uh, both were called The Power of Losing Control. In it, he encourages readers um, and viewers to remember that the only control you really have is over yourself and provides technique and strategies to stop wasting valuable time and energy on what we can't control. He also produced produced an audiobook called The Principles of Authentic Power. He advises CEOs, military leaders, and leadership teams across the world on the essence of change for success and ultimately driving success for his clients. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Caruso. Joe, welcome. Thank you, man. That was, uh, that, that was, I want to meet that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and me both. And I'm glad that I actually met him. Um, so speaking of the mind, um, how would you define the collective mind of an organization? Um, as something that is separate from the individual mind of the members of the organization, because when think, uh, one could easily assume that the collective mind is really, um, everyone's minds put together. Um, versus it being a separate mind or is it a separate mind or is it just like everyone's mind put together like how would you define the collective mind of an organization um yeah let's start from there and then we can go from there it's a good question um my my next book's called narrative wind quite often here where i live in uh the midwest in um michigan uh united states we have deer on the island so deer is a deer. If you're a, if your narrative or your context of yourself is a mm. hunter, if you're uh, driving at night on country roads, deer is the most dangerous animal you'll encounter. A lot of people get killed when they when the deer hits the car, or the car hits mm-hmm. the deer. Okay, so if we look at Culturally, in a business, uh, there is a collective narrative that says we're Google, therefore we're creative. We're Amazon, and therefore we think this way. And the leader's job is to create that foundational narrative that Mm -hmm. everybody then uses to contextualize how they approach their work. It's the same Mm -hmm. with religion. It's the same with politics. Mm -hmm. And actually, you, you mentioned something there, right? The foundational narrative. I think in other places you've called it the foundational context. Uh, so, yes. 
what what is it and how does one begin to define and develop it man if i'd have known you were going to ask such tough questions i slept better <laughs> last night <laughs> um okay a narrative is a story we tell ourselves we are and we are the stories we tell ourselves we are a context can be a narrative and a narrative can be a context it's mm. foundation a context is that is the general that determines <laughs> specific so the mm. narrative is general mm. okay uh, in, in but a context can also be like if I'm talking to someone who likes to drink beer and mm. they don't like wine, mm. that's their narrative. That's their story. But the context is the more I try to say, well, try this wine, the more they'll say, I don't drink wine. Mm. And, and, and so basically, it's the lens. Your, your, your listeners can't see me. I've got glasses on. But it's the lens that we look through to see the world in the way we want to see it. Mm. And then we live to justify that because our greatest desire is to be right, not to be happy. Mm. Um, and so is it a collection of like set of values that uh, an organization um, has developed and decided to live by? Um, is it a worldview? I mean, of course, a worldview is made up of values and other things as well. But um, yeah. would would having a set of values be the beginning place of establishing this context that you're speaking of? A hundred percent correct. So, if I did my research correctly, uh, you're a Christian, right? Yes. Okay, and and so there are values uh, attributed to Christianity by Christians. And you live, you try to live those values and let them guide how you think. Uh, my, my Jewish friends, my Muslim friends, uh, they have their version of how those values drive how they should approach their world the mm. same way. And so a good leader knows this. Mm. And says, here's who we are. We're Amazon. We're thrifty. We know the difference between a one-way door and a two-way door. That's their, see, also there's language involved. Mm. Okay. Um, and, and, and we um, not afraid of change. Mm. If it can be different and that's better and different is better, then we'll adapt. Mm. Um, and it's the leader's job to establish these ways of thinking, these foundational contexts, this collective mind approach. Mm. And then, and, you know, <laughs> I always say humans are more like dogs than cats. We're social animals. Mm. We like to get along. We like to be liked. And we like to think together and cooperate. Cats aren't like that. Mm. And, and, and leaders of businesses or organizations, they know that. So in the United States, let's say uh, you're a Marine. Well, a Marine is a branch of service here. And they say you're a Marine for life. And they let you know your mother's not there. I'm your mom. 
and, and they change the whole way you think about uh, being a Marine. Mm. Uh, the Navy is, has, that's another branch of service. They have their own approach to things too. And highly, uh, most of it is about training and preparation. Keep mm. doing the same thing over and over and over and over as though you're going to do it, even though you're not at war, perhaps. Um, so a leader's job is to understand this first and foremost, and to help people organize themselves collectively around foundational ideas of who we are as an organization. Mm. Critical. And, and mm. most leaders never even think about it. In fact, I will argue in my years of experience, mm. uh, most leaders didn't create their culture. The culture created itself. Yeah, and I because, agree with you on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In in in. Uh, so when it's time to recruit, this is the problem. When it's when a business has to pivot and recreate itself because the market changed, say uh, mm. the the environment changed, the product is outdated, whatever changes. We live in a dynamic world. That means ever-changing. Um, they don't know how to recreate a culture because they never created one in the first place. Mm. And that's where, they, that's where they, they have a not a tipping point, but a tripping point. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> a tripping point. I just uh, saw that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Um, and so, of course... Now, in the world we live in today, right, where, I mean, it's, it's getting less and less the world of um, experts because now the world is so dynamic. Like you said, it's ever-changing. So um, diving deep in, into one field, um, that linear way of thinking, so to speak, um, is slowly dying away and the world requires to have more dynamic thinkers. And so having broad knowledge about a number of things uh, is much more useful in the world we live in today than just having like deep knowledge in one area, although that is still useful and I'm sure will remain to be useful. Um, so, but you also speak of this whole idea of like when you bring together a group of subject matter experts um, and okay. then you have a vision, sometimes there can be misalignment there, right? And you, 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 you advise that uh, vision should come first. Um, and then subject matter expertise should follow. And of course, and I love the analogy that you use, right? Where you have a group of musicians and them having them play a song versus just like, you know, every single one of them do their own thing. Now, in the world we live in, right? Speaking of this dynamic world that we live in today where things are changing, we don't necessarily know everything that we think we know. Things are always changing. And sometimes there could be something that is outside the scope of what we know, uh, and so do you think that in this dynamic world, crazy complex world we live in today, should vision always come first or should there be flexibility in terms of sometimes people should be given room to play outside of what we have agreed to do? Uh, and then hopefully magic happens there. So it's like jazz in a sense where there are no, we don't have a song, we're just playing. And uh, sometimes we follow the drummer, sometimes we follow the sax player, like, We'll see where this goes. Like, of course, you can't always live like that because that's going to be chaotic. But do you think leaders should aim to cultivate a space where there is, yes, there's a vision, but sometimes 
you can, uh, you know, go outside of that. And if you find something magical out there, then we bring that in and find ways to incorporate that. Or should it always be a vision over, you know, expertise and all these other things as well? Great analogy. Yes, I did use, I actually hired a jazz band before I spoke once and <laughs> had them play and use them as the example. They were friends of mine, so they didn't mind. It, they were, it wasn't like a joke on them, you know, but, but let's use, let's stick with that analogy. <clears throat> Excuse me. Not all questions should be framed as either or. Mm. So if we shape the framing of this question, and we look jazz, it's somebody's got to claim a tempo. There's got to be chord changes that everybody agrees on. There's got to be a key that everybody's mm. playing within. So there are rules. And that's the vision, the song. Mm. But it's called jazz because at any point in time, anybody can take off and do anything they want within that framework. And, and that's the foundational context. I mean, if you go and murder someone, that's against your, your, your religious belief. You're out of, you're out of the frame, man. You're not, you're not there. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm leaving out, of course, the Crusades. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what they did, you know, Pope Julius and so on. But, but the bottom line is, the vision is kind of the guide. Now, if you decide to, to change songs or introduce a different idea, you still have to have that order. Now, let's get to the subject matter expert part of your question. <clears throat> Almost all leaders organize their leadership team around the subject matter experts. So you have a CFO, chief financial officer. You might have a marketing, you know, SMO. You might have a CTO, a technology officer, uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. Chief sales, head of sales. And, and that's your leadership table that you meet with. So you're a CEO and you walk in. Now, they're all walking in loud and proud for the most part. They're loud mm -hmm. and proud about their own um, expertise, I worked hard. I'm an expert in this. You need to listen to me. But what I teach leadership teams is take your hat off. Leave your, leave your ego at the door. Like the record producer Quincy Jones had a sign above his, above his door in the studio that said, leave your, leave your ego here. Mm -hmm. We're going to play music. And I was in a recording studio once. <clears throat> I used to be a musician. I'm a recovering musician, Ben. <laughs> My name is Joe. And, and um, we brought a guitar player in to play a solo on a pop song that we had written. And it was a, a famous producer. And I was sitting next to him in the control studio. And he says, uh, the guy's name was uh, Arnie. He says, mm. okay, Arnie, let's hear what you got. Arnie just couldn't wait to show off his chops. You know, everything, mm. he, didn't get, he didn't get into everything he was doing. And it was a pop song. It was a simple pop song. And, and uh, the producer let him play it and then stopped the recording and hit the uh, playback uh, or the uh, studio microphone button and said, Arnie, yeah, 
can you play a solo to this song? That's mm-hmm. all I had nothing to do with this song. So, yeah, the vision is, is important because everybody's got to kind of be on the same page, but they should also be allowed to riff. And your table of subject matter experts, if my salesperson talks to marketing, it shouldn't be a critique. It should be they get to talk about marketing. And marketing mm-hmm. gets to talk about sales. And the finance person gets to talk about finance in terms of sales and marketing. So everybody gets a riff within the context of the vision, the song. Mm. Uh, so even in improvising and, like you're saying, riffing, right, that it's done within the confinements of what we have agreed to accomplish. So what you're saying, the operating framework, uh, that this is what we're doing, not just, you know, just <laughs> like the uh, guitarist that you just mentioned, you know, like just jamming and going off to a different song completely. Uh, okay, makes sense. Um, now, now, the, other, the only other thing I would, I would add to that too is when you talked about experts and in, in how we all want to know a little bit about a lot of things. That's an old mm-hmm. American song. I know a little bit about a lot of things, but I don't know enough about you. Hmm. The thing you have to know about the most is yourself. You've got to know your proclivities. You've got to know your tendencies. You've got to know what your buttons are that people push that make you angry and not as smart. And you've got to learn to regulate. And these are critical things. And to do that, it takes a lot of inward work. I meditate hmm. every day. Mm. And that inward work builds up over time. You know, I, I, I was working with a, a someone who plays golf, the game of golf. <clears throat> and I saw a golf movie. I don't play. I don't know anything about golf. But I saw a movie. It was a Disney mm. movie. And there's a thing called a dog leg. So there's a fairway. You hit the ball straight. And then it makes a hard right, and there's usually trees blocking the flag, you know, the, the pin that you want mm-hmm. to put the ball in. <clears throat> in some days, you can hit over the tree, and you know you can hit over the tree and save that extra shot. But some mm-hmm. days you can't. And so the question I asked on my website, it's CarusoLeadership.com. And the question I ask my clients every week, we talk for one hour a week, every week, anybody can do it. As long as they pay me, I'm, I'll do it with them as long as they do their work. If they don't do their work, I don't work with them. Mm-hmm. They have to be introspective. But I say, how's your mind today? Because some days we shouldn't be making big decisions. Some days we shouldn't be taking tough meetings. Some days we feel a less, a little more insecure and a little more vulnerable than other days. You have to know. How do you know? You got to check yourself out. Mm-hmm. And my job is to help everybody bring their best, their best, as often as they possibly can every day, consistently. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and that's tough. I mean, the introspection part of it, right, where I'm sure there's a significant number of people who see solitude, you know, 
uh, and introspection and that whole practice of asceticism where you've set yourself aside and just to reflect, to think deeply about um, yourself and why you made that decision and how you react the way that you do, why this, why that. Some people see that as a waste of time. Um, I, I, I got to get moving <laughs> to do this, especially uh, high-level leaders where you have so many deliverables and deadlines and demands and uh, you're reporting to a board and so it's the world is noisy and you feel like stepping away everything is going to collapse and so I, I and i've seen that struggle as well with uh, high level leaders whenever in consulting it's setting that time aside um to change one's mind from thinking it's a waste of time and it's useless to actually frame it like you know i think there's something that you say as well right what you yes. do outside of your main deliverables, be it your job or whatever it is, is equally as important as what you do, you know? So to that way of thinking that resting, stopping, and not doing anything and think and introspect is equally as important as sitting in a boardroom and making a decision that will ultimately change the future of an organization. To, to see that act as as important or maybe close to importance as this, that change of mind, how, how does one begin to make that shift? Well, I think contextually we have to understand that there's what we do, then there's how we do it, and there's mm. why we do it. Okay, so anybody can pick what they do, although most people don't. They wake up in the morning and they've got a list of things they have to do because of the clock and time, and kids, and grandkids, and whatever else is going on. Or their boss tells them what to do. I choose what to do. My day doesn't happen to me. I happen to my day. Then there's how I choose to do it. I can love my wife all day long, but how do I do it? And I'll, get, I'll tell a story about that. And then there's the why do we do it? What's the reason? What's the, what's the driving force? So here's the story. I'm in my dressing room. And I have my, um, my device. By the way, that's the other reason people don't want to spend time alone. They're used to being intakers of external information, stimulation all the time. And if they don't have that external stimulation, they get bored. So it's like, well, now what? I'm here. I'm sitting here. I'm alone. But well, well, now what? I got to go mm. on Facebook or do something because they don't know how to be alone. So I'm in my dressing room and I'm getting dressed. And my wife comes in and she said, I understand that you're going to visit your accountant. It's about an hour drive from my, my house. And by my accountant's office is a very nice shopping mall um, with yeah. a lot of nice stores. And my wife doesn't like to drive. She says, I understand you're seeing your, your accountant next Monday. Maybe I can go with you and we could go to the stores. It's an American pastime shopping. And I said, uh, now I know, Ben, at this point, I'm not going to see my accountant on Monday. Hmm. I don't have an appointment to see him on Monday. Hmm. So the last thing I want to do, this is a how you do it, 
is tell my wife she's wrong. Hmm. Don't go well when you tell people they're wrong. That's when the. <laughs> so I and my wife's lovely. She's a, one of the sweetest people in the world. So I said, "Hmm, I didn't realize I was going to see my accountant on Monday. Hmm. Let's look." And I had my iPad right in front of me on the counter in my dressing room, and she comes over to look, and I flip it to Monday. And there's no appointment. And she said, well, somebody changed it because I have, you know, a team. And I said, well, let's see. Maybe it's a different Monday. And I started scrolling through the weeks to find out when it was. It was like two weeks later. Mm. And I said, there it is. And she's still hung on that idea that it was it was Monday and someone mm. must have nefariously changed it. And I said, okay. I said, however, my Monday looks pretty light after about two in the afternoon. Why don't we go to the mall? Mm. She was fine. So how you do it is driven by why you do it. I love her. I don't want to piss her. I don't want her upset at me. I want to make her mm. happy. And so that's how I chose to not say, you're wrong. There's no appointment. It doesn't exist. Mm. It's, But it was clear to me, she already had her mindset on going shopping for something. I don't know what. Who knows? Mm. Uh, but that's not I, I, that's not mine to ask. Well, what do you need? That's not an American question, basically. <laughs> you know, mm. it's, what do you need? Well, I don't, I don't know. I I need this, and it's never mm. what they need. It's just what they want. Um, so we've we can think in terms of the what we do, how we do it, and why we do it. And that shift in the way you look at your life can help you change what you do. Because you can be doing all the right things in the wrong way. Very common. Mm. That's the mm. how. For the wrong reasons. I'll tell you another story. Listeners like stories. Mm. Woman sees me speak doing this public presentation, and she happens to live somewhere where I live, someone you know, like drivable. And she calls the office and says, "I'd like an appointment with Joe." So my assistant says, "Do you want to meet with this woman?" I said, "You know, I remember her. I've met her once. Um, yeah." I'll meet with her. So they set up a meeting. We're in my office and she comes in and she's got a business suit on. She's very well presented, well appointed, very professional. And she says, um, I want to do what you do. Mm. And I said, what is it that I do? Because to her mind, I was a public speaker. But I'm not a public speaker all the time. That's not how mm. I really 
make my money, you know, or, or my living. So I said, what is it that I do? She says, well, you tell, you tell your stories to people. I said, okay. Now I'm starting to find out her motivation and her definition for the how and the, and the what. And I don't know the why, but I'm starting to see it. And she says, I want to tell my story. I've got a story to tell, and I want to tell it to a lot of people. Okay, we're getting there. Mm. That's not why I do what I do. So I said, absolutely. I'll tell you what. We've got contracts and, you know, documents that we use and how we do our business and everything. I said, I'll tell my assistant, you go down to the offices and I'll tell them to give you everything. Just steal it and use it as a template. I mm. said, but I have one question. She said, what? I said, imagine there's two doors in front of you. Behind the first door, there's a million people that you can help, but they're never going to know your name or that it was you that helped them. Mm -hmm. She said, what's beyond the second door? I said, one person that will know your name and thank you for the rest of their life. Which door do you want to open? And she started to cry. A tear came mm -hmm. down her cheek. And she says, the second door. I said, then you don't want to do what I do because I don't do what I do for my ego. I do what I do mm -hmm. to help other people. To develop myself to the best of my abilities, to be the best I can and inspire and inform and enlighten other people. That's mm -hmm. what I do. And I think that, that if people realize that more often, they'd have mm. and they give themselves that time alone without the device in their face, the phone or whatever, computer, that mm. they can have then the what's called the objectivity, the ability mm. to see yourself from a bit of a distance, the space of time where you can be quiet and reconsider everything you do. How, the yeah. what, the how, and the why. And the more that you can do that, the more you're going to bring your best self and your best wage to create your best life. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, and I think, yeah, definitely it's very, it's like an easy hack, very hard to implement. Um, and, but I, yes. I think <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that I know that when one implements it, it's very, it's quite magical. Now you say that how we define our problem determines all the answers our minds can possibly fathom. How we define our problem determines all of the answers our minds can possibly fathom. So my question here is how do we expand our ability to Define problems. That's I'm a great question. It's, yeah, it's something that can be expanded. So how, how do we expand this ability to okay. define problems? Uh, yeah. Your assumption is correct, yes. Mm. Um, uh, two answers. Mm. The, and and they, they're not dissimilar. The first answer is how we define a problem determines all the solutions our minds cannot possibly consider. 
So if someone says, well, you know, I'm broken, there's nothing I can do about it. They've already decided there's nothing they can do about it. Okay. Um, I misdialed one time. I was calling my assistant. Uh, I was on the road uh, advising. And I was running down the stairs and I misdialed. I meant to call my assistant. Instead, I called one of my best friends who's a psychoanalyst. Mm. His name is Dr. Curtis Bristol. He'll be in my new book. And mm. I said, he said, hello. And you know, when you misdial and it's not the right voice, you, you, you pause for a second and go, oh, geez. Well, uh, I've been there, yeah. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what I did, you know? Yeah. And, and so I said, Curtis. He said, hey, Joe. How are you? I said, great. I said, I got to be honest with you. I was trying to call my assistant and I misdialed, but I'm so glad I got you on the phone. He said, you misdialed. Hmm. What else could that mean? <laughs> Being the brilliant analyst that he is. <laughs> yeah. it, 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 so if we have the ability to say, what else could this mean? What else could this problem be? What, could this problem be an opportunity? Is this problem some way of somebody telling me you're barking up the wrong tree here? Mm. Is, this, is this problem me getting in my own way? Is mm. this problem the same problem I've always had my whole life in different clothes? Because mm. then I'm creating it with my mind and my mind's desire for patterns. So what else could this mean is a great question. It's in the book. It's going to be in the new book. Mm. Um, and so it's essentially about retaining that uh, state of curiosity where like a child always asking questions. And I think it's something that you just mentioned previously. And, and it reminds me of, I think, is it John Maxwell, his book, uh, Great Leaders Ask Great Questions where this yes. idea that in leadership really it's not about having all the answers, but it's about knowing how to ask all the right questions. That's exactly true. It's a hundred percent true. In, in a great, when I was a kid, I would say why, and I would get an answer. And then I'd say why again, like three more, I must've drove my parents insane because it was like, yeah, but why? Mm. No, but, but, but why? And, and I was insatiably curious, which today I still am. I'm a great teacher, man. I'm not going to uh, be modest about that. I get paid a lot of money to be a great teacher. <laughs> and, and the world just has justified this monetarily for no me. No false humility there, right? No, I don't believe in false humility. I just yeah. don't believe because... Humility has to be true or it's mm. not humble. Mm. And, and so no false humility. No, ever. If you can hit a home run in baseball, you're a home run hitter and you say, I'm a home run hitter. You ain't bragging if that's what you do. But mm. the bottom line is you're not saying I'm a home run hitter and you're not, mm. you're not, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I'm a great teacher and you are not, you're a great teacher. You're asking great questions. You're, you're modeling exactly what Maxwell was talking about. These questions have been very good. This has been one of the better podcasts I've ever done. And, mm -hmm. and it, 
that insatiable curiosity. So if someone comes up with a crazy idea in a business meeting, my question would be, what led you to that idea? What were you thinking that drove that kind of thinking? I want to know that first. I want to understand to see the world through other people's eyes. Mm. I can only see the world from one side of my eyeballs. I, I, I want to be able to understand why someone does something, not just what they do. Mm. It, and so this is called perspicacity. It's a tough word. But there are some people that are, we write about this in the book, totally unaware. They have no idea what's going on. They just go through the world, you know, just as, as Shakespeare wrote in Othello, the world is merely a stage and each player knows his part. Mm-hmm. So they just do their part. But they don't know why they're doing it. They don't know the play. They don't know the narrative. They're just doing their part every day. Some people are aware. And they understand what's happening. Mm. Uh, uh I'll give I'll give a, a bad example to a sports fan. They're gonna not like this, but a sports fan is called a fan in America. Mm. Fan is short for the word fanatic. Mm. But they'll brag about being a fan. And if I said, "Well, are you?" They'd <laughs> say, "No." See, so they're unaware. And then to be perspicacious is to not only be aware of what's happening but to know why it's happening. That requires Mm. that reflection that we just talked about a minute ago. Mm. And and that endless curiosity that you just brought up. Mm. Yeah, actually, ironically, because I was just doing some work for a client today uh, around assessing their team culture. And that's one of the questions was (laughs) that uh, whenever a decision is made, is there a tendency for people to be curious about the process it took to arrive at this conclusion? Or do people just go with the wind? You know, if it blows this way, then that's where we're all going to go. So I guess, uh, so I, li- I like the analogy, right? The, the fanatic, uh, you know, the fan, that's, a, that's a great question. There's a lucky client there for you because uh, that was a great question. If, 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 if someone said, if I'm a soccer expert, okay, football, mm. football, expert and someone said come and look at my team we're going to do a little scrimmage so i'm going to take Mm. half the team and they're going to play the other half of the team uh but i'd like you to coach them and see Mm. tell me what you see Mm. he says oh so i show up and the coach would say okay how do you want to organize this i would say Mm. i don't i don't want to organize it where's the ball give me the ball Mm. And they throw the ball in the field. Now they're going to do something. Each Mm. person will play their part. Some people will take the lead. People will choose their positions. People will be aggressive or not aggressive. They're going to decide what to do. They're going to make a game. Just like Mm. we're kids. And what I'll observe is then what I'll be able to coach. Mm. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Now, s- something else that you 
first of all, I think it's, it's a question because uh, I, I saw somewhere that you were writing a book. Maybe it's the book that you're writing right now, but the title has changed. Uh, writing a book yes. called uh, uh, The Undeniable Leader. It changed to context wins, but it is about undeniable leadership. Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Cause I, cause I, cause I was quite curious. That you- <laughs> you're, you're the first one that, uh, I'm sorry, narrative wins is the title, but I just came up yeah. with it two nights ago. Um, mm. so your audience is the first to hear this. Yes. Oh, great. Cause I was curious in terms of, you know, like who is this undeniable leader, um, <laughs> from your point of view, I know we're getting sort of like a special preview of, of what's cooking. You, you actually, this is the most I've talked about my upcoming book ever, mm. but your questions have mm. been so good in the books on my mind. So it's natural. You know, I, mm. I don't believe in, in false humility, uh, any more than I believe in, not being fully and empathically in the moment with the other, bring your full mm. self to the other person in the moment mm. and all will go well. Mm. Amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so who is an undeniable leader? <laughs> oh, I don't have a, a name of a prototype, I, but I mm. could say it's all the a leader that does all the things we've talked about. Don't be the first mm. to speak. If you're the leader and you're the first to speak, you just control mm. the context by which everybody else has to think because they're going to mm. be, uh, they're going to comply. You don't mm. want them to comply. You want to be, you want mm. them to be creative. Be the last to speak. Ask good questions, as you said. Mm. Make sure you mm. create the foundational context and the narrative of that collective mind that we started this conversation talking about. Mm. Help people bring their best self, their mm. job, and not compete with others, but to cooperate with others, but still be able to be open and challenge. You know, mm. cooperation isn't full compliance. I, mm. I, you and I are cooperating right now, and you've asked some questions, and I said, well, hold on, let's shift that a little bit. So mm. we're not competing. We're bringing our full self to, to an idea. Mm. That's bigger than us, which is also a key to mm. success. If you think you're the most important thing in the world, you're wrong. It's got to be something bigger than you, which is that collective driving narrative mm. that helps guide. Yeah, and, and, and speaking of like leaders, right? Uh, something else that you say that you know, in times of crisis or when you're going through unprecedented times. Um, don't deny people their fears, rather edify their hope, faith, and a sense of purpose. And when I saw this, I, I wondered, you know, how, how do you edify hope when you don't have all the answers? Because I think sometimes uh, from a leader's point of view, to be inspirational, to, you know, try and inspire faith and a sense of purpose, you have to have the answers. So how does one go about edifying hope, uh, faith, and a sense of purpose without having all the answers? And in a time of crisis, you won't have all the answers, so to speak. Oh, absolutely right. Uh, two, two elements to that question. Good question. I, I like you. you, you you've got a good mind. Uh, the, the, first, I don't admire problems. Mm. And when someone brings a problem to me, 
I don't deny their problem. I don't make their problem small. I don't honor their problem. I honor their mm. pain. Mm. Honor the pain, not the problem. That's human. Mm. Then, do you want to talk about it? You have to have permission. Because mm. sometimes they're just there to complain. Or to whinge, as the Brits say. And mm. so, okay, maybe they don't want to talk about it. But if I have permission to talk about it, I could say, okay, well, let's let's break this down. A guy called me one time. Uh, do I have time for one more story? Yeah, certainly. Okay. All right. A guy calls me up. I'm in an airport. I don't know where. And uh, he's a lawyer in New York City. Very high-powered, high-pressure job. Uh, he was, he's a, a devout Jewish man and a good friend of mine. And he calls me up. We've done a few deals together. And I said, Hey, how are you today? And he <clears> said, well, if it wasn't for my mood levelers, I'd probably commit suicide. <clears> I stopped. I went to the quietest part of the airport I could find. So that's an interesting answer. What's going on? And he's got a wife who's a, a, a spendthrift. So mm. no matter how much money he makes, there's never enough money. And it's always on the daughter. So I, he's, he tells me about this and she's going to play the flute and how they want to buy like I don't know, picture a gold-plated flute for a beginner, you mm. know, that kind of an idea. And and, uh, and then they want the best teacher in New York, which works mm. for the symphony, you know, and it, 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 his wife likes to make sure that she can brag that everything is the best, even though mm. he can't keep up with it. And he makes good money. So, so, okay, where are you right now? He goes, I'm in the car because if my wife knew I was talking to you about this personal stuff, she would be embarrassed. Where's your car? He says, it's in the garage. I said, is the door closed? He said, yes. I said, is the car running? He said, no. I said, okay, we don't need to run the car. So that's good. I said, so I'd like to talk to you about the problem. But I'd like your permission because within 20 minutes, I'm going to have the name of the best psychoanalyst in New York in your uh, phone. I'm going to call you back in 20 minutes so that you can talk to somebody who's professional. And in the meantime, let's talk about the, the issue of money. And he said, okay, how do you want to start? I said, well, is your problem solvable? He said, yes. He's a very pragmatic thinker. I said, do you believe there's more than one possible solution? He said, I'm sure there are many. Mm. I said, okay. 
that's great news. He said, why? I said, because we only need one. Mm. So now we're not trying to find a needle in a haystack. We're trying to pick a needle out of a whole pile of needles. Mm. This is easier. And I said, when you think about your problem and you think about potential solutions, is it possible that all those solutions have a cost that you don't want to bear? Not a price cost, but a pain cost. Mm. He said, yes. I said, so there may be some pain on the way to your gain, just like if you lift weights. Mm. He said, yes. So okay. When you advise your, your clients as an attorney, do you let them know that it's going to be easy or that there might be some difficulty on the way to you solving their problem? He says, I have to tell them it's going to be, it's going to be difficult. The law, the law system is not always really uh, easy to deal with. And other lawyers can be really bad guys sometimes, especially if there's money. Mm. At I said, okay, so can we talk tomorrow? And he said, oh, yeah. I said, what time? And so we pick a time. So now I know, I know he's going to live 24 hours. Because he's going to keep mm. his word and talk to me. I know that he knows his problem is solvable. So he's not nihilistic or mm. despondent. He gave himself hope. I mm. just lined his mind up contextually to have it. Mm. Wow. Is it- <laughs> yes, yeah. I think the story, I think the story well, perfectly of, illustrates what you were saying. <laughs> Hell of a trip, I tell you what. <laughs> I hope it's all yeah. right. oh, boy. How, how is he? How is he now? I mean, is he is he is he is he still alive? Yeah, he's alive. He's doing great. He's thriving. He's got a great practice. Uh, mm. He and his wife got a financial advisor mm. who uh, was able to talk to them about a budget and mm. living within their means. Uh, the daughter, uh, probably in college now. Wow. So yeah, that's, um, a, that's a happy ending. <laughs> I got to tell you, I was like, okay. <laughs> Remember I said, be, be fully and empathically in the moment with the other. That required mm. everything I had in that moment. Mm. Because I didn't want to so say have, one wrong word. Mm. So I have like two more questions that I would like to ask. First, the last sure. one will be the one, one, one. Uh, but I have another sure. question. Is, is that okay? Yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Um, so something else that you say is also, you know, when you deliver triggering bad news, uh, contextualize it in a way that they can find power in it, even though they have no control over it. Right. So finding power over something that you have no control over it. Uh, now many of us have been taught and made to believe that power goes hand in hand with control. Uh, if you're told that you have power over something, it means you have control over that thing. Uh, so in changing how we think about, you know, power and control, uh, how, how does one find power in something that they have no control over? Good question. And you know what I respect, too, is you've really done your homework. Uh, my last book was called The Power of Losing Control. It's in six languages. Mm-hmm. And um, we have a new audio version of it that's out for anybody in the world mm-hmm. to, to get from the website, carusoleadership.com. 
what I say is it's an out of control world. You have power in it and no control over it. Control is an illusion. And let me give an example. If we get in my car, Mm. uh, I've got a, I I got a a pretty nice car, sports car. And so if you like to drive, because you feel like you're in control when you drive. So you hit Mm. the gas and you're driving and the, the top's down and it feels like, power right because you got all this Mm. car but let's change the scenario you can control everything in the car except the accelerator i'm going to control the accelerator are you in control of that car at that point or is Mm. that car out of control Mm. you're not in control of that car (laughs) no i I listen to a wall Right. And so, and so the, the, if you can't control external things in life, how, like your spouse, your kids, your dog, mm. Mm. if you can't control them, totally control them, send your kid off to school and tell him what he can and can't think about. Good luck. Mm. Mm. If you can't, Control is all or nothing. It's an illusion. So we have power in it, but no control over it. The minute you can adjust that and say, well, the only thing I have control over is myself, what I do, how I do it, why I do it. Mm. That's control. I couldn't control my wife when she walked into the dressing room with that story I told, but I could influence her. I had power in the moment. that's the, it's a critical distinction to understand. Otherwise you try to control everything. And by the way, no one's going to like you because no one Mm. wants to feel controlled. Mm. So your ability to influence them, you diminish your level of power when you try to control. Mm. When you don't try to control, you can even have more influence. I wasn't trying to control that lawyer. Mm. You were trying to influence him. Most importantly, being fully and empathically in the moment with him and listening to him, understand him, and help him recontextualize what he was thinking. Mm. And I think that's a good way of framing it because I think even leadership, right? Uh, Leadership is influence. And you you said this earlier as well. Leadership is influence. 100%. Yes. uh, so even thinking of power in leadership is to think of it as power to influence rather than power to control. 100%. If you, if you have a product and you want to sell it to the marketplace, the marketplace gets to decide whether or not your product's worth a damn, not you. Mm. You're not going to control them. You can't make them buy it. I mean, in, in America, you have to have insurance to own a car. Okay, the government can make you have to own insurance, but they can't tell you where you get your insurance or how mm. much you pay for your insurance. Not in America. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Control is an illusion. It is. Um, <laughs> I think, especially in times of crisis or in volatile situations, we tend to have a habit of wanting to control things uh, as a, it's, it's I don't right. know if it's. Yes. No, it's, it's very simple. You're right. 
because in crisis, there's fear. Okay, you have a, a stem in the back of your brain called the amygdala. And when that amygdala feels fear, the whole nervous system changes. Your pupils dilate, your palms can sweat, your mouth can get dry, you can get a, a rush of adrenaline, your physicality can change. You can't sleep, you can't eat. There's all kinds of things that change when that amygdala gets out of control and starts running fear through your mind. And the more we feel fear, the more we feel out of control. So we think getting in control will control the fear and we'll be fine. Yeah. It's just false. It's just a false assumption. It, it, it's a connection that doesn't connect. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's illogical. It has nothing to do with the way the mind actually works. Your right frontal cerebral cortex is logic. But when the amygdala is going off, your right frontal cerebral cortex, your greatest desire, as I write in the, in the book, The Power of Losing Control, it's just going to justify why you feel the fear. You know, if my yeah. wife says, I'm, 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 I'm hot, the air conditioning isn't working, and I walk her over to the thermostat, because today it's 100 degrees here. You know, you're yeah. having a cooler, a cooler time in, in uh, what is it, about 6.30 where you are, right? Mm. In, in, but if I walk her over to the thermostat and I point to the thermostat and I said, it hasn't changed. She's not going to, she knows how she feels more than she knows what she knows. Mm. And the thermostat's going to be wrong. <laughs> Flat out. Mm. Don't make any difference. Mm. So if fear, the amount of fear, as that escalates, the feeling of control de-escalates. And we think that we get the control back, we've got to get in charge. Well, mm. we can, what is, is, man, accept what is. Mm. And then say, now what can I do? Where's my power in it? I have no control over it. Mm. What can I influence to sort of like go back to a state of normalcy rather than what can I control to, you know, get back to that state? Exactly. And you can ask yourself that question and say, how am I defining this problem in a way that it has me scared? Mm. How am I defining my life as a problem versus an opportunity? Mm. And, and that's where that quiet time, that meditation, meditative time, Become so valuable. Mm. Yeah. And now we've arrived at the question uh, that we tend to ask all of our guests, which is the one, one, one. And I think uh, it'll be the last question for this conversation. But I, I hope we have another conversation once the book is out. Uh, it's the one, one, one. Basically, what is the one book you wish you had read earlier in your life? Um, what is the one habit you wish you had developed earlier as well? And what is the one value that you will not compromise no matter the cost? Wow. I love that. Uh, and, and we will. That's going to be between us to decide, but let's make sure we talk again because I've, I've really yeah. thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Um, I'm 18 years old. I'm diagnosed with deadly cancer. No cure. I'm one of the first mm. people cured of this cancer. 
And I decided I'm going to spend five hours a day, five days a week for the rest of my short life, learning what I'm going to miss, studying life. And so Mm -hmm. I started reading books. And the first and most impactful book that I read was the story of philosophy by Will Durant. I have it right Mm -hmm. here. And he, the reason I chose that book, Will Durant was 1920s. And it was the most famous philosophy book, I maybe even to this day. Um, I wrote, I, I read that book because he starts with um, Socrates and goes all the way up through Francis Bacon and Wittgenstein mm. to say, these are people who think about thinking. And here's what they thought in this order. Mm. And I wanted to see how thought progresses. I wanted my mind to, in my short life that I had left, to be able to, uh, uh, oh, and your listeners, so they're not nervous. I'm cured today. I'm one of the first people ever cured of my mm. disease. Uh, I don't want them to think that I'm not going to be able to get to your other two ones. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, I wish I would have uh, learned more about how thinkers think earlier than uh, 17 and 18 years old. Uh, your second one was about a habit, mm-hmm. meditation. I started that at about 20. Mm-hmm. I wish I would have understood better um, as, as a kid when my mind would just wander. You know, I'd be in school bored, looking out the window. I wish I could have better, uh, better understood what my mind was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't wish, I mean, like, it's, it's, I'm not sure it's even possible, but, but that would be a habit of studying my mind and meditating uh, with more introspection. Mm-hmm. and With an introspection that was equal to my curiosity. I think that's the mm-hmm. best way I can say that. Uh, which value uh, would I never... I would have to say the value of the appreciation of life and others. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think if I lost that, I would be an egoist, um, possibly a narcissist, possibly Mm -hmm. a bad guy, um, because that drives everything else that I do. Those are good questions. Mm. Cool. Thank you so much, Joe. Uh, this was certainly useful to me personally uh, and impactful, and, and I'm sure it will be to all of our listeners. And, I'll, and I will include um, the different resources um, on the show notes, so links to your book, some of the talks you've done, your website and your organization. And so people, I'll make sure that people have a way to sort of like get in touch and uh, learn more about the work that you've done. So thank you thank so much for making the time to have this conversation. Thank you very much, man. You've been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you. And to our dear listeners, this has been the Wild Lead Others podcast, and I'm your host, Ben Oden. This has been the Wild Lead Others podcast, brought to you by Wild Lead Consultancy. 
Wildlead Consultancy is a capacity-building firm that exists to build highly productive and innovative leaders. To reach us, go to www.wildleadothers.com.